0: So we're starting a brand new series. This is a series on the minor prophets. And it's going tangentially, uh, by the grace of God, it looks like Baylor's going to be publishing a fourth devotional book, the third one will be out this November in time for us to give you one for Christmas, I hope, and start the new year with it. But uh, a fourth one that is on the Minor Prophets, a devotional book out of the Minor Prophets. So be praying about that as I try to write that in, in conjunction with teaching this class uh, because it's, it's an exciting opportunity to take what we're doing and expand it in broader circles. So with that, let's get started. The first Minor Prophet that we're going to talk about here is the book of Joel. Now the book of Joel is one that it's kind of hard to place. We don't know exactly when it was written. We don't know exactly uh, uh, the, the forum in which it, it took place, but I'm dealing with it first because I think there are some good indications it was most likely the first of the written minor prophets. Now you'll see as we go through it, at least my current plan is to keep the English on one side of the page and the Hebrew on another. A number of y'all who are in Greek class at the library um, may say, Oh man, I've just spent a year or so learning Greek and now you're going to Hebrew. That's upsetting. Trust me, keep learning your Greek and I'll put some Greek up there periodically. Like next, um, well not next week, but in the, the book of Jonah, when we get to Jonah, the the hebrew translators took uh, that that translated it a couple hundred years before jesus into the septuagint the hebrew translators took some of the hebrew and translated it into greek that adds some real good spice and color like the hebrew reads that jonah was deeply sleep, in a deep sleep in the under the deck but the greek people said he was asleep and snoring and uh, you know, so so we'll bring the Greek in where it, it illuminates some idea. Uh, but by and large, we're doing this, and that means hopefully next week, somewhere between Janet Seifert and I don't know, maybe uh, Cheryl and, and Mike Roberts or, or something. Next week, I hope to give you a bookmark that's got the Hebrew alphabet on it, and and give you some information and then maybe on the back side it'll give information about the class so we can hand them out to people who might be interested but we do have some people in here who read hebrew and we certainly have people on the internet that read hebrew so it'll be helpful at times to throw the hebrew up there if you don't read hebrew don't worry about it you'll catch on to what we're talking about anyway as we go through it now this week here's our plan of attack we're going to do three things this morning god willing the first thing we're going to do is we're going to put Joel into a historical context. The, the Bible's not written outside of history. It's written in history. And so we'll want to look at the historical context so that you can assess where all this stuff's going in and file it appropriately in your brain. Then after we've looked at it from a historical context, we'll look at it from a biblical context. In other words, in terms of the Bible itself, how does Joel fit in and why is it an important book for us? And then the last thing we'll do is a little bit of a taster or a teaser. We'll check out a couple of the little texts because next week, my goal is to deal with the book in greater total. So uh, uh, with that as our plan of attack, let's get started with the historical context. Joel, I believe, there's good indications that it was likely written during the 8th century B.C. Now, those numbers we always have to adjust in our head unless you're used to dealing with them all the time. The 8th century B.C. went from 800 years before the birth of Christ to 700 years in a day. So it's the 7 to 800 time era before Christ that's called the 8th century. All right? Even though all of the 8th century numbers start with a 7, they're the 8th century. It's like we're in the 21st century now even though it starts with a 20. It's not the 20th century, it's the 21st because you got those little tricky years you know like between zero and one anyway all right so what do we know about the world during the time that this book was likely produced well we know a couple of things we know it was during the eighth century that the olympic games first started and so we can categorize what was going on in greece by the olympic games 753, the middle of the 8th century, is the supposed date for the founding of Rome with Romulus and Remus. And so you've got the founding of Rome, you've got the Olympic Games. If you shoot over to our continent, you've got the rise of of the um, early Mayan civilizations. Uh, this is uh, uh, probably an 8th century head that was found. Uh, this was actually in Mesoamerica. I think this was found in Mexico. But it gives you an idea. If you're from Ohio, the Adena people, the Adena Mound people, uh, they, they are 8th century B.C. Uh, this is a relic that's found on Adena Mound up in Chillicothe, Ohio. It's uh, a pipe. Uh, of a fellow Native American that supposedly would have dressed and and regaled himself with such jewels and adornment. And so that's what's going on at this end of the country. If we want to look at literature, there's a good indication that Homer dates from the 8th century B.C. Now, if you don't know who Homer is, Homer uh, is from the Turkey-Greece area. And Homer is the author, supposedly, of the Odyssey. The Odyssey tells the story of Odysseus, who who has fought the Trojan War and has trouble getting back home. And all this chaos happens back home. And it takes him 10 years to get there. And it walks through him with the cave of Cyclops and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Homer also authored, supposedly, the Iliad which is the story of the Trojan War. So Achilles and and the Achilles heel or tendon and all of that. Those stories, that genre of literature seems to have been coming out of Greece, Turkey area during the same time as Joel. There's another biblical work, prophetic work in the Minor Prophets that we'll look at next. And that is the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah is also an 8th century B.C. work. So if that helps you place this in some type of a context, by the way, I don't mean to be unfair, there's another literary work that may or may not have been this early, the Ramayana uh, uh, over in India, a Hindu work, and uh, Rama, it's the Journeys of Rama, but uh, some people date it much later. Uh, around 325 or so but again it's a a, it's a journey story and it's it's one that that is still popular in India today now if we hone in during the 8th century on the biblical lands around Israel and when I do it on this map it gets a little fuzzy so we're going to change maps for a moment to get some clarity and we'll go satellite on you we know that the Egyptian empire has already been going for a long time. I mean, if you wanted to go see the pyramids in 700, 800 BC, they've already got stalls set up to sell tourist trap stuff. I mean, it's, it's been heavens when Joseph went to Egypt. Those pyramids had been there for centuries before that. So so uh, don't be thinking oh that maybe when they built the pyramids they they were long built before that uh, but but Egypt was the empire to the south of Israel the other major empire at the time was to the north of Israel and that was the Assyrian empire we will learn a lot more about that especially as we look at the book of Jonah which is where Jonah was sent to Nineveh which was one of the major cities of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is one of the most impressive and enduring empires of history. And we actually have a lot of knowledge about it. It's just not one that we typically study in our schools because we're more products of the Roman Empire. So we spend more time talking about western civilization in that sense but we will dig into the Assyrian empire now between Assyria to the north and Egypt to the south you've got a lot of nomadic tribes in the desert area moving from oasis to oasis but there's a strip of land that goes down here that the satellite shows you with some greenery there's life in that land that's that's a land that's flowing with milk and honey And that's where God placed Israel. And it's real interesting because if you want to be an Egyptian and you want to fight Assyria, you're not going through the desert. You're traipsing right through Israel. And if you want to be Assyria and you want to take down Egypt, you're not going through the desert. You go right through Israel. And this... Placement of Israel placed it in a very precarious situation. Because it was always either going to be conquered by one of the... And have to pay vassalage to one of the major empires. Or it was somehow going to be strong enough to stand by itself. And and God put Israel in a place where Israel had potential to be a beacon to the known world and civilizations around it in a powerful way. But God says that's only going to happen if you're a beacon for my good. You turn to idolatry and all the rest, and I'll just let the nations have you, have their way with you. And so we'll walk through that as we walk through the Minor Prophets. That history is part that I'm not going to detail today, but I'll be detailing it as we go along as we work through these minor prophets. Because it's fascinating. We have so many records of the Assyrian Empire now. Uh, that were discovered. A bunch of them at Nineveh. During the excavations of Nineveh. But, but we've got records that give us a lot of information. About Shalmaneser and tiglath and, and And it's going to be really fascinating. If you love history, you'll love it. If you hate history, you'll still love it. Because... I want you to really bad. Now by the time we're in the 8th century though, Israel is no longer just Israel. If we speak of Israel, it's also called Samaria at that time. I'll give you more details about that later because it becomes more relevant later. But that's the northern part of Israel. The southern part of Israel is called Judah which is the main tribe in that southern part of Judah. So the the kingdom of the Hebrews has been divided at this point. And I think it's useful, as we continue through the historical context, to add the biblical historical context so that you've got this in your brain. Depending upon how you date things, and I am called a, quote, late dater, And by that, it doesn't mean that Becky and I go out like at 9 o'clock at night. I'm a late dater in the sense of the Exodus. I place the Exodus in the 1200s instead of the 1400s. But somewhere in that area is the Exodus where Israel is called out of Egypt. Now as we continue to fast forward, we get to the 1000 to 962 era. And that's the reign of King David. So you've got David on the throne. David's got a son named Solomon. Solomon sits on the throne when David's dead. Solomon dies, and that's when Israel splits because his son can't hold it together. And so you have a division of the nation of the Hebrews in 922 into that northern kingdom and that southern kingdom. And so Jeroboam and Rehoboam are the kings in the divided kingdoms, and each continue to have their own lineage. Sometimes the north and south fight against each other, especially over control of a critical plateau. And We'll talk about the geography and why that's important. Those of you who are going to Israel with Pastor Jarrett uh, in, I think it's December, uh, will want to hear and plug into this because the geography of the land Helps us better understand so much of Scripture and what was going on. Uh, But anyway, so that division happens. And then somewhere around 780 or so, you start having these prophetic voices that are now the minor prophets. That's not to say there weren't prophets before. There were. Moses was a prophet. Elijah and Elisha were prophets. Samuel was a prophet. But the written prophets that we've got start up in this era. This is the era of the minor prophets, and it continues up to just uh, 300 plus years from the time of Jesus. So, that's the historical context. Next, let's put this into a biblical context. What is a biblical prophet? Think about that for a moment. I know Paul talks about people who have a gift of prophecy, and so the question becomes, are there prophets today not in the same sense, I reckon, but a biblical prophet, someone who carried that proper designation in the Bible. And by the way, it was an important designation. It was important enough that Moses laid it out, and Moses said, if someone claims to be a prophet, and they are proven to be false in what they say, kill them. Because being a prophet is not something that is taken lightly. It's something very significant. For us, it's very common to study the Bible. Uh, We've got Bible study groups. This is a Bible study. Uh, There's Bible study fellowship. There are Beth Moore studies. There are all sorts of Bible studies. There are private Bible studies that people have. My wife's got a Bible study program that she follows that's kind of uh, uh, her own uh, amalgamum or or syncretism of these other ideas. Different people have different ways of studying the Bible. I, I have a Bible study program that's sort of my own approach and what I do. But Bible study is a relatively new thing. It... Having this book is a relatively new thing in terms of history. Being able to read is a relatively new thing for most people in history. In 1450, Johannes Gutenberg is credited with inventing the movable type press. And for the first time in history, it was easy to mass produce written materials in a font that people could discern and read. And when you can mass produce materials, all of a sudden, instead of it taking you a day to produce a one-page important document with errors and everything, you can put it together and you could make uh, 500 copies in a day. And the effect that it had on civilization was massive. Massive. Because before this, nobody needed to read. You didn't have anything to read. Books were so expensive. Leaflets were so expensive. There's nobody's mass producing paper. You don't go down and get your school supplies and get paper. Schools are rare. But once this starts being printed, then all of a sudden it's a game changer. And now you've got an outcry for the Bible to be put into a language that people who have learned to read, suddenly, can read. And so there's the outcry that changes the Bible. At the time, the predominant Bible used in Western world was in Latin, the Vulgate. Vulgate comes from the Latin word that is vulgar. It means commonplace. Because that was the common tongue at the time the Vulgate was produced. In the Eastern Christian world, they by and large still use the Bible in Greek. But I, I don't know how your Latin is. I took it for a few years. Mine's pretty weak. I can still tell you omne Galles es divisa in partes trace. But outside of telling you all Gaul is divided into three parts, I'm about out. But there was an outcry to turn the Bible into everyday language. When there's an outcry to turn the Bible into everyday language, all of a sudden it's like, well, where's the authentic Scripture? Because the King James Version, for example, which was done in 1611, is using manuscripts that really date from just a few hundred years before. But now that the Bible is going to be studied and in depth and everybody wants to do it and they want to do it in the right language, everybody's like, well, how do I find out what the Bible originally said and not copy of a 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 copy? And so the, the archaeological world and the explorer world went out trying to find old manuscripts to put together to try to assess what was the most accurate reading of Scripture, And that's why the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s and 50s was so profound. Because it showed, by locating scripture copies that dated back even before the time of Christ, it showed that the copies that had been made by Masoretic scholars in the 800s and 900s and the 1000 era were incredibly accurate. So... You've got a rise in the Bible, but now we're going back to 700, 800 BC. There's not Bible study in the way you and I think of Bible study. You want to study the Word of God, you may go find a Torah, the first five books of Moses, but the odds are you're not reading and you don't have a copy. You may get the Shema and put it over your doorstep, but there are are serious historical facts about our scriptures. And the Bible itself grew over time. It's not a product of, hey, this year we're coming out with the Bible. The Bible is a process. And so over time, the Bible is being put together, it's growing, it's occurring within a context. And the key to that were the prophets in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's, it's a, 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 the Holy Spirit worked through the church, and the church put together the apostolic teachings of the New Testament. But the Old Testament, the key to its, it, not just its composition, But it's compiling our Old Testament prophets. That's why it was so critical. If a prophet's not a real prophet, they get stoned. They're not allowed to go out and get their own little cult following. Because we're dealing here with what ultimately becomes our Holy Bible. And God is working on it from the very beginning. When Paul writes the letter to the church in Rome, Paul asks the Romans as he he expounds upon how Jews and Gentiles alike need the righteousness that comes through the gospel. And Paul asks a question that might have been in their minds. Well, what's an advantage then of being a Jew if Jew and Gentile are the same now? Paul's reply is there's a lot of advantage, but the one thing he isolates and mentions first is he says, to the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. These are Jewish prophets who are putting this together. And so the Bible that we've got the benefit of studying in this class is one that's a product of not just a prophetic voice in writing, Joel, but in compiling the Old Testament itself. And in that way, we're to think of a prophet. The best metaphor I've got for a prophet are speakers. They're God's speakers. Over and over and over in Isaiah, you'll read "Ki p'adonai debar," because the mouth of God spoke it. The prophets are simply being the speakers. The sound producers for the words of God. So if you look, for example, at Joel, you'll see in Joel the first thing that's written, by the way, Hebrew, remember, you read from right to left, not only on the page, but within the words themselves. So, devar, the very first word here, devar adonai, the very first word is the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord that's what this is let me tell you a story mom I don't know if you remember this or not we were in Lubbock Texas we'd moved there I think I was in about eighth grade and there was a, a, um, a store opening it's kind of a store that had lots of different stuff in it and it had like high-fidelity equipment and they had drawings to get people to come in, they're giving away some freebies, and you know, and so you could go in, you put your name in there, about like once every thirty minutes, they'd have a drawing, and they'd sell something, and mom, lo and behold, goes there, they have the drawing, she wins a turntable, brings it home, one excited boy. Who quickly learned how business works? Because the turntable doesn't work without a stylus. So you buy a stylus. Well, the turntable still doesn't work without an amplifier. Well, those things are expensive. And it doesn't matter once you buy that because you still gotta have speakers. So yeah, that store would give you an $80 turntable that was useless unless you spent another $750. I bet they were giving those away to everybody who walked in. Without speakers, you can have the best Bob Dylan album ever written. You can have blood on the tracks. You can have slow train coming. You can have You can have U2's Joshua tree, which is basically the Holy Grail of the last 40 years of music. You can have it, but if you don't have speakers, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that it was written. Doesn't matter that it was produced. Doesn't matter that it's got great orchestration. Doesn't matter. None of that matters if you don't have speakers to hear it. And what the prophets are is they're the speakers. They're not writing the material. They're not the... The creative artist, they're the mouthpiece for God. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord that came to Joel. This is Hayah. This is what came to be. This this is not the word of the Lord that Joel creatively thought of. This is the word of the Lord that came to him. That he had to proclaim. That's an Old Testament prophet. And that's who he was. He was God's speakers. Now the Old Testament prophets, some of them we know. Some of them we don't know. But they are the ones responsible for the Old Testament books. Now we've got a set of scrolls, because they're actually writing on scrolls. We call them books, but they were scrolls. And we in Western Christianity typically will speak of the major and the minor prophets. We're going to be studying here the minor prophets. Now the minor prophets aren't minor prophets in the sense that they're working in a coal mine. Although we'll find treasures if we dig into the minor prophets. Nor are they minor prophets because they were underage when they wrote their material. Although, the size is part of why, mainly why, they're called minor prophets, but not age. Think of the big and the little dipper. Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. The big dipper, Ursa Major. The minor dipper, Ursa Minor, the little dipper. In that sense, minor prophets. They're small prophets. If we look at the way Christians typically categorize Old Testament books, the first five are the books of the law. They are the, uh, uh, no, they're the books of the law. And then you've got history, then you've got poetry, then you've got the major prophets, and then you have the minor prophets. Now, that's the Christian organization of the Bible. The Hebrew organization is different. The Hebrew Bible is called the Tanakh. Tanakh comes from three different words that are kind of combined. The T stands for Torah. Those are the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So you've got those five books. That's the T, Torah. Here, let me throw it up. Five books of Moses. The, The Nevi'im, Neviim. Actually, it's got the two e uh, i sounds. The Neviim are the prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, the prophets include Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. What we would call the major prophets, with one exception. And what we would call the Minor Prophets. Which they call the Twelve. Because those Twelve Minor Prophets all fit onto one scroll. So in the Hebrew world, you've got the Law and the Prophets and the Ketuvim. The Ketuvim, that means the writings. So this is Psalms and Proverbs and Job and the Song of Solomon and Ruth and Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther. Daniel... In the Hebrew Bible is put in the writings section. in the English Bible, we tend to think of it as a major prophet, Daniel. They don't include him there. Um, Ezra, Nehemiah and Chronicles, First Second Chronicles. Those are the writings. But all of these are compiled by prophets. They're not just written prophetically by people who are speaking on behalf of God. they're compiled prophetically. And this is why if you see a passage like Luke 24, 44, it's a great passage where Jesus is talking. Luke 24, 44. It's the resurrection time of Jesus. Jesus says, look at, let's see. He spoke to them, Jesus spoke to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the Law of Moses, the Torah, the Prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, which is another reference for the Ketavim, the writing section. Uh, the Psalms is by far the largest section of that. In fact, it takes up over half of it. Uh, not quite, but it's, it's huge. So some would just reference this third category as Psalms. But Jesus, it gives us an indication that those sections of Old Testament scriptures were already in place at the time of Jesus. So now, we've got the historical context and we've got the biblical context. But I can't let you leave without us checking out some text because I want to whet your appetite for next week. Okay? So, here's the process we're going to use. I'll throw Joel 1-1 back up there. The word of the Lord... They came to Joel, Yoel, the son of Pethuel. Now, word of the Lord, Devar Adonai, is an important start to this. You'll notice in English that Lord is written in all capitals. It's very important. It's important in Joel, it'll be very important in Jonah because these words in Jonah get really thrown around in very deliberate ways. We need to know these words to best understand Jonah. But it's important that we know that this yod, hey, vav, hey. Those letters in Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, those indicate the name of God. When Moses is confronted by God in front of the bush that's burning... Moses says, I need to know your name to tell everybody. After all, I'm going down into Egypt, where they have thousands of gods. What's your name? God gives him that name, Yahweh, yod Hey vav Hey. i am saying Yahweh. It's probably not even remotely how it was pronounced. We don't know how it was pronounced, because historically, at some point, the name was deemed so holy that a Jew would not only, or a Hebrew, would not only not say it, but frequently wouldn't even write it. So if you find, for example, the community scroll among the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're quoting a passage out of the prophets, and in the quoting of the passage, they come across the name of God. And they just put four dots there instead of writing the letters. In another place, they write the letters, but they don't use the current font that that was the font of the day. They used what's called a Paleo-Hebrew font. One that would have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. But a good Jew when they're reading through this even today will see this and won't try to say Ya'avah which is the way you'd pronounce it if you were reading it. va instead they would say uh, Hashem which just means the name. Or they might say Adonai, which or Adonai depending if you're Ashkenazi, which means lord just generically. But there's a difference between the Hebrew word for lord and the name of God. And so Bible translators struggle to figure out how to best convey it. The King James conveys it by translating it Jehovah But most English translations translate it Lord, but put it in all caps. It's just the ORDs in a smaller font of the same cap. So this is the word of the Lord. And this word of the Lord comes to Yoel. Yoel. Now, you see this first letter on Yoel? It looks like a, a comma. That's raised up high. Can you see that to this side of my hand? It's, it's that one right there. You see it? That's the first letter of God's name. And so that's what it means when it's put onto a name. Jehovah. Or the Lord. The name of God. And so you've got the name of God. L. Jehovah is God. El means God. So Joel's name, Yoel's name, means Jehovah is God. Now, this is written from the mouth of the Lord. So the mouth of the Lord wants you to know this is the word of the Lord that came to the man whose very name says that the Lord is God. And he's the son of Pethuel. But Yoel is, Jehovah is God. Pethuel likely means the sincerity. Pata of El, God. Again, that same last two letters, same last two letters. That's the generic word for God in a singular form. And so Jehovah is God. The word of Jehovah came to Jehovah is God, the son of the sincerity, the heartfeltness, the earnestness of God. Which raises this very important question. You can't read that verse in Hebrew slowly without asking yourself this question. I know who God was to Joel. It was his name. It's in his name. It's the Jehovah God. It's the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But who's God to you? He said, well, I don't worship idols. Let's let's not parse terms. Let's say, let me ask it this way. Instead of using religious language, let me use everyday language. Um, where's the first place you turn when you need help? Where do you put your confidence if you've got a medical problem? Now, I'm not saying, oh, I've got a friend who's just, uh, I've got a medical problem. Uh, I'm just going to pray about it. I'm not going to a doctor. I'm sitting here saying, well, who do you think made medicine? Okay, you want to go to God, that's good. Pray for God to give the doctors wisdom and, and pray that you get into good medical care and all the rest of that stuff. But don't snub your nose at what God's made. I had a friend one time who was unemployed. And I said, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm just going to pray about it. I said, well, what else? He said, That's all. God will bring me a job. I said, but like, are you out looking? No, no, no. I'm just going to pray about it. He was hungry <laughs> for a long time. but the first place you turn that gives focus to all the other resources you've got, that gives meaning to all the other resources that you've got, that sources all of the resources you've got. That's who your God is. It's the reason it's as hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven as it is a camel to go through the eye of a needle because the tendency of someone with resources is to put their faith and trust in their resources instead of the one who gave it to them. I've got another friend who says he's scared to death of his resources. He's pretty well off. And I said, why? He says, you realize how many of us are just two bad decisions away from living under a bridge? I said, well, I'm not too, am I? He says, oh, yeah, you are. And he detailed two decisions I could make that could send me under a bridge. And don't, don't think that your possessions are going to save you. Don't think that your, your, your family is going to save you. Understand the only salvation you've got in this world as well as the one to come is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he'll give you your family. He'll give you your resources. He'll give you your friends. He'll give you your church home. He'll give you the resources you need. But when you experience that, you always recognize they're from God. And he gets the glory and he gets the credit. The word of the Lord that came to, the Lord is God. Then it continues. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. This is for everybody. Has this ever happened before? Have you ever heard of this happening before? What he's referencing is the fact there's been a massive locust plague. A huge locust plague that has devoured all of the crops. Like nothing they've ever experienced before. And that's what Joel's going to be writing about. Now, my buddy Dale Hearn knows this, and he sent me a video, and he says, I'm in Pennsylvania, and we've had this really bad locust, and so I thought you could use this. Look at this useless video he sent me. Are you ready? Oh, there was one. There was one. Locusts are grasshoppers, by the way. Yeah, he's searching for another one. So I thought, well, Dale, that's not really going to be helpful. But maybe if I expand it and play it three times, you know, then maybe we can see it. (laughs) Didn't do much more. It just makes you drunk. (laughs) But Joel is saying, what's happening here is not common. What's happening here is not common. Now, there are certain things in life that we share in common everybody in life experiences joy and grief. Everybody in life experiences excitement and tedium. Everybody in life experiences companionship and loneliness. Satisfaction and frustration. Peace and fear. These are common. But Joel says, this has never happened before. Talk to the old people. They'll tell you not even their parents experience it. This is not common. This is uncommon. And there are levels of those same things that are uncommon. There's a level of joy that's uncommon, and there's a level of grief that's uncommon. When I was a very, very, very young lawyer, I also got to preach at the church where I was going on Sunday nights in a rotation with some other folks. And, um, and I loved it. It, it was a thrill. There was a lady that was, was rather um, difficult in the congregation. And um, I had heard that her someone in her family had died, had passed away. This lady was about 30 years older than I was. I'm in my young 20s. And I went up to her... Uh, I think it was a Wednesday night and I said, um, boy, I I know, uh, I'm so sorry to hear about the passing of so-and-so. I know how you must feel. And she (laughs) stuck her finger in my face and said, don't ever say that to me again. She said, you don't know how I feel. You're too young to know how I feel. You haven't gone through what I'm going through. Don't patronize me by saying you know how I feel. And, I mean, she was right. I'm not sure she was diplomatic. (laughs) But she was right. She was experiencing a grief that I don't... It was uncommon to me. I don't know how she felt. I know she must have felt horrible grief. But I couldn't say, I know how you feel. I was wrong. There's excitement. There's tedium that can be uncommon. Uncommon companionship when you find that person that you just sink with uncommon loneliness when there seems to be no one else in the world there are uncommon satisfactions and uncommon frustrations there's common uncommon peace a peace that passes understanding that the world can't relate to but there's also a fear that's an irrational fear and an uncommon fear all of those but here's my question what do all of those sensations what do all of those experiences what do they have in common both the common and the uncommon If you're experiencing anything in this life that's common or uncommon, I can guarantee you one thing. I can guarantee you that there is an ever-present God right there in the middle of it with you. And I may not be able to say, I know how you feel, but He does. And I may not be able to say, I know what you're going through, but He does. And I may not be able to say, I have an answer, but He does. And I may not be able to solace you in your grief, but He can. And I may not be able to give you purpose in your loneliness, but He can. There is a God who is ever-present, and that's one of the messages of the book of Joel. This is the word of the Lord that's coming out right now. God is speaking into this most uncommon situation that no one's ever experienced before. God is present. God is here. So tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation, Look, if you didn't know the word bane, ben, bane, b-n kind of sound, means child, son, but generically children. This is, L, to your children and to their children, to their children, and to their children. It just keeps going and going and going and going. Let all people know there is a, present God in the midst of the common and the uncommon there is an ever-present God let everyone know that all right we got time for one more quickie Joel 2.1 blow a trumpet in Zion sound an alarm on my holy mountain a trumpet a chauffeur a chauffeur was typically a ram's horn, didn't have to be a ram's horn. They'd drill a little end out of it and hollow it out good, and it stinks, and you can blow it if you're really good, and you can make noise. And they would blow trumpets, and still do, for Rosh Hashanah, for New Year. They'd blow trumpets as part of the temple ceremonies. They'd blow, blow the chauffeur for a warning sign if there was danger. Or in military conflict, they're blowing chauffeurs when they marched around Jericho. Now, when I was in elementary school, I went to Vollmer Elementary in Rochester, New York. Uh, that looks like a lot of snow. That was uh, 1 July. Uh, Vollmer Elementary. Catherine, you remember that? In Rochester, New York, and I remember distinctly. You kids will enjoy this. Kids being anybody under the age of 40. um, We would have duck and cover drills. Where the alarm would sound as if nuclear holocaust were happening. The Russians have launched the nukes. They're coursing towards America. What do you do? You get under your desk. <laughs> yeah, that's really going to help. And <laughs> yeah, duck and cover. Here come the nukes. Um, blow a trumpet. but He says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Zion's a holy mountain. That's where the temple is. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm. This is, these are the words of God. On my holy mountain. These are the words of God. See, this is, God's got a message. Pay attention. God's got a message for you. And that's what we're going to explore next week as we do it. So here are your points for home. Number one, who is God to you? Where are you turning? What do you really ascribe worth to? What's so valuable? Are you willing to say, I'll lose everything to know you? to God that's a scary thing to do but whoever God is to you make sure it's the Lord and if it's the Lord your God then tell everybody what he has done and who he is and how he's present in his life and that he has a message because if we do those things God will transform not just us and our circle but he'll transform the world Let me bless you in the name of Jesus, and I'll see you next Sunday. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for each person that hears this message and pray that you will speak into their hearts and lives and declare your Lordship and draw them into a deeper discipleship with you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, amen.